Building a better you is a constant and continual task. It is always the, the thing we want to do and always the thing that we need to do, continue to work on ourselves. So far in this series, we've talked about the foundation, the cornerstone, if you will, of emotional intelligence as exhibited by Jesus and sought by us all, being simply that, that reality that we are here as self-aware, because self-aware people are people who are ready to live life. They are ready to live life because they have the capacity to identify their own thoughts and emotions that are occurring within themselves. They have learned to be in touch with what they're thinking and feeling in the present so that the actions that they take in the future will be reflective of those thoughts and feelings in appropriate ways. People who are not self-aware are not only not aware of their own emotions, but they are not aware of the emotions of others. People who are self-aware have taken the first and most important step toward becoming people who can empathize with others. To empathize with others is also an important and a large building block in our relationship with other people as well as with our Lord. Knowing a person's feelings and feeling what that person feels and responding compassionately to someone's distress is what empathy is all about. Until we see these two emotional traits exhibited clearly in the life of Jesus, until we understand that we all have the capacity to exhibit those traits and to build on whatever amount of strength we have in either of those two areas, we are not yet approaching the place in our emotional intelligence maturity where we can move forward in life. We're not yet a fully developed person to the extent that our intelligence emotionally has been thwarted. We're going to talk a lot about that today. We're going to talk about it in pretty practical terms today, looking at three different parts and expressions of such emotional intelligence. The first one is yet another cornerstone that goes along with the idea that we need to be aware of what we're feeling and how we're acting. We need to be aware of others around us. We need to feel what others are feeling and be able to put ourselves in those places so that we can respond to them appropriately if we're to have meaningful dialogue in our lives with them. Then there's this next part that I was talking to the children about. There's a story in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, a story where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he said, for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Boy, don't we get hung up with worrying so much about our lives in terms of what we eat and what we drink, and what we drive, and what we have, how we have fun, and how we have prepared appropriately for retirement to the point where we will never have to worry again. Oh, where does that point arrive, by the way? Where is that point when you're so prepared that you don't have to worry about anything happening? It just doesn't exist, does it? And he's talking to them about that in this very passage of Scripture. They're worrying about so many things. And, you know, he lived in this land uh, that he was raised in where life was hard. Life was not an abundant life. It was a life of scarcity. 
It was a life where famine came and people were hungry and there was nowhere to go and buy food. It was a life where disease was rampant at times in families and there were no doctors who knew what to do about it. He lived in a time when uh, intelligence about illness and disease was very small. There were many reasons to be a pessimistic person in the culture in which Jesus was raised. It's amazing that in the midst of that culture, Jesus did not adapt that way of thinking for himself, but rather chose a much more healthy way to live. He chose to look at an abundant world. He chose to look at the world with an optimistic viewpoint. He did not believe that we should expect bad things to happen all the time. You ever serve on a church committee where there was one person who was just negative about everything? It always distresses my soul when I get on such a committee. Probably some of you too, right? It distresses my soul so much I usually think, how can I get off this committee? And then I realize, I can't. (laughs) But you tell me you can, and you say, I don't want to serve on a committee. I can't stand that pressure of being with those people. And I understand, because sometimes some people or daddy wet blanket and mommy sour face. You know, they just come to those meetings and they don't have much of an optimism about much of anything, especially in the church. And that just is really a downer. And it's a struggle for people who are optimistic. But you know, optimism is something we should understand. And in the book that I'm reading, this Emotional Intelligence of Jesus book, he says, and I quote, that, uh, that maintaining a positive attitude when facing adversity is what optimism is all about. Maintaining an optimistic attitude when facing adversity. The way people are able to accomplish that is they realize some things if they're an optimist. They realize, number one, that as he writes in his book, setbacks are seen as temporary. I know you run into some people occasionally in life. Usually they're members of other denominations, not Methodists, who they just feel like they have a little black cloud following them around. I'm never going to get a good job. I'm never going to find the right person to marry. I'm never going to be happy or have what I want in life. And you're just going, you know, you're just gagging on it all, right? And you know they're gagging on it too, so you're empathetic and you don't stick out your tongue and go, "Ah," you just go, you know, I'm sorry you feel so bad. You empathize with them, right? But you know in your own mind you want to convince them that setbacks are temporary. And we need to remember that when we're facing difficult times. Misfortune by an optimist are seen as situational, and specific, not inescapable or long-standing. This is true of, the, of congregations. Did you know that? You probably did, right? I've, I've come to a few churches when they just, the message is clear. The gospel is preached regularly without, throughout the congregation. This is all we've ever been. This is all we're ever going to be. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> you know, we've always been small. We've always had preachers come. The first church I went to, full-time out of seminary after a short term as an associate, the first thing one guy told me, he says, well, 
After things had been going along pretty well for six months, attendance had increased. He said, well, you'll be gone in about a year. I said, really? He said, yeah, you'll be gone. I said, well, tell me how you know that. And he said, because all the preachers are gone in a year to two. And we're a small church. They never stay long enough, and you won't either. He was a realist. Actually, he's a pessimist. Oh, was he pessimistic? And he just kept on saying it. Ever so often, another month would roll by. He said, well, you'll be gone for long. You know, it's the way it works. We don't ever get to keep the preachers we like. You'll be gone. The bishop will move you. And I said one day, I said, I'm not going to be gone in a year or two. Yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. Look at our history. I don't care. You're going to be gone. I said, I bet you I'm not. And he said, what do you want to bet? <laughs> I began to think he was akin to the bishop or something. I don't know. But being the hard-headed that was, I said, well, what are, what are you willing to wager? I bet I'm not here. He said, well, I'll wager this. If you're here in three years and we have attendance of over 200, and he grinned, six times in a row, then I'll preach one Sunday. And I said, what do I have to do if I don't? He said, you've got to come sell cars for me one day so I can go fishing. I said, Deal. About five years later, he was preaching one Sunday morning. <laughs> but he would never have believed it had he not sat through it. He had the funniest look on his face when he stood up before the congregation and said, well, I didn't believe it could happen. And I've been there at that point five years. Now there's a young man who's there. I was a young man then, sort of, who's building a new congregation, a new church in Salina, Texas. What a privilege it is to watch him do it. He's breaking my record, but I'm willing to hand it to him. Some people, though, they're so pessimistic that they think misfortune is continual. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, it says, you're talking about me and you know it and you need to quit it. <laughs> it is possible I'm talking about you and I do know it. But fortunately, I don't know that many of you that well. But if you're always thinking misfortune is following you along like a black cloud, it might be what you're thinking about that's causing it more than it's really intending to follow you along. If you're dwelling on pessimism, if you're dwelling on the negative in life, if you're always feeling like every day is Charlie Brown, oh me, what's going to happen to me today, then it's almost like you never see the good stuff that is actually coming. You know, a pessimist also gets a negative self-image. I'm never going to succeed. I just never got a fair shot. I'm never going to be the president of the United States. Donald Trump, uh, Mr. Trump thought the same thing, and I hope he's right. <laughs> Oops, that was out loud, wasn't it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For all you Trump supporters, I love you. And I don't mind you support him, just don't vote for him. Is that a political statement? I think it is. I better leave that alone. You see, optimists refuse to accept all the blame all the time for what's going on in their lives because they rationally consider other possible causes of failure. Sometimes it's not your fault. It is the fault of others. Sometimes it's not the other's fault either. Sometimes it's the fault of nature. Sometimes it's the fault of the way the world operates. Sometimes stuff just happens. If you live long enough, some stuff is going to come your way, right? All the older people were saying, yeah, trust me. 
You know, if you're expecting every day to be rosy, you're going to be disappointed. I went to a, a soccer game this week for young children. They were all the way from this tall, about looked like 10 or 12 years old, down to this short, a six and under team. And the six and under teams are expecting to go out there and play their first game and kick the ball and fall into the goal, right? They're expecting to win and walk off the field triumphant. That's what they see on TV. Imagine the shock when one of them loses and realizes, oh my gosh, we didn't win. I mean, they're terrified. They're, they're destroyed. What happened? We're supposed to win. We're supposed to be ahead. What's going on here? Well, sometimes in life, you lose. Unless you're always playing someone you know you can beat. It's like the parent playing his small, young child in checkers. He can always beat his young child. The day the young child starts beating the father, the father doesn't want to play anymore. <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> you know? You know? You're going to lose some battles, it's true. But you're not going to lose the war. The first hymn we sang is a great, a great song that we sang when we opened worship with it. And I think you probably already put it on the screen. I lost it, didn't you? I don't know if you're up there. Hey, up there in the box, can you turn on and give me the first verse again of the first song? Let's see how well that works. They're, free, they're going back. And there it is, magic. They're right there behind those little slits. Nothing can stop us. Nothing can hold us down. Death is defeated because, Jesus, you have overcome. If that is true, how can we be pessimistic? How can we live with the perspective that failure is imminent? It's just not reasonable for Christians to be pessimistic. I know what you're thinking. So let me pause and say, also, we don't want to be positive-thinking Pollyannas either. Because all real inquiry into life reminds, it, reminds us to test what is going on by reality gauge. Reality testing is also a part of emotional intelligence. You know, it's the middle of July. It hasn't rained in six weeks. And somebody gets up on the floor this morning and says, God loves us and it's going to rain today. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, reality tells me that every weatherman says it's not going to rain anywhere in Texas for the next five days. They could all be wrong, but since there's not a cloud in the sky, it's going to be hard for it to rain today. But it will rain again someday. We just don't know when. You see what reality testing does? Reality testing doesn't take a Pollyanna view of life and say, oh, God said we're going to be filled with joy, so everything's going to be a happy moment. No, that's not what Jesus said. He did say he wanted his joy to be in you and your joy to be made full, but joy in biblical scriptures is not dependent upon just the stuff going on around us, right? Right. Say yes. All right. Good. Because you see, real optimists also have a streak of realism. They're going to test reality realistically and say, our congregation has been this size for 40 years, and realism tells me if we don't do something different, it'll be the same 40 years from now. That's what reality tells you. And you can be optimistic that if you start doing things differently, God will bless it, and your future will be transformed. Is that so hard to believe? Good answer. So when you look at life, you approach it optimistically, but you test it with reality. 
you test it with reality. We have some control over our destinies. We are not pre-programmed robots. We can interact with God and life and cause, with God's help, good things to happen and bad things to change. I remember playing on a basketball team as a young lad. We were so good. I don't know why we only won four games all year long. But, you know, I knew we were better than that. And Joey Burge moved to the town the next year. Joey Burge in the eighth grade was six foot four. And that year, we only lost four games because Joey was big. And it gave us an advantage. Our reality changed. Realities change. They're not permanent. Defeats are temporary. We are not dead until Jesus calls us home. And that is not a loss. That is a victory. That is life as we should be looking at it if we are optimistic persons. Now, taking this comprehensive approach to being optimistic, tested by reality, will allow us to take a view of life that causes us to have a much more joyful experience and causes us to be a source of joy for many others. And that's a great founding principle for us. But, but other things are needed. I want to talk about two more things this morning that go along with that test. But before I do, before I leave optimism, I want to get it firmly rooted in your head. Look at that last uh, verse there. The last verse in, in that chapter, the last two or three verses actually. Let me read it again for you so you won't forget it. Okay, I'm back over here, Doug. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You see, this is what... Optimism is based upon. It is based upon the belief that God loves us, blesses us, is merciful and gracious to us. And so therefore, even in the tough moments in life, God can be trusted to be by our side. And if we trust God to be by our side, then we can be optimistic about the worst circumstances. Even when realistically we know they're not going to turn out as we wanted we can still be optimistic about our future because our future is being understood by our present reality that God is empathizing with us and can be trusted to assist us in the days to come. The opposite of believing in an abundance and optimism is believing in scarcity, the very world that Jesus was raised in. Scarcity, the belief in scarcity causes us to believe that our size of our savings account determines the happiness of our future. If you live long enough, then I will prove that wrong for you. Because when I retire, it won't be based upon the size of my savings account, trust me. Because otherwise, I'll be working until you pull me off the stage. But my joy and my 
confidence in my retirement is not based upon my retirement account, but rather is based upon my trust in God to care for me when I exercise good judgment and live appropriately for a person who's no longer working full-time. How does that look? It's simple. When I go to play golf, I'll look to the person playing with me and say, are you paying for my golf today? (laughs) And then they'll say, no. And I'll say, maybe I should carry your bag. (laughs) There's a way to play. It might be at a different course, but there's a way to play even when you're retired. But it requires some realism to go along with the one you've trusted. I do not intend to be a pessimistic retiree. Now, that even gives me hope about political elections. How optimistic am I? I mean, you know, I'm optimistic that whoever gets elected will make the most important decisions that we need for our country. I'll make jokes about whoever it is, as you know. I'll make more jokes about some than others, probably. That's a personal failing. You'll have to forgive me or not. But the actual belief in the abundance of God and his desire to bless us makes a lot of difference. Remember when the 5,000 men plus all the women and children were together and they were hungry? They got fed in a scarce land. Remember how the widow came to the temple and put her last pennies into the offering plate that she went in? Because she believed in a God of abundance. And she trusted in that God. And so she was optimistic. Every farmer I've ever known is optimistic. Some of them growl a lot. Some years they growl a lot more than others. But they are optimistic that the good fortune will return in their work. Now, if we're an optimistic person and we move on in life, then there's another skill we need to acquire. And this writer goes on to say about this particular skill, a mark of emotional intelligence, is not very biblical in terms of Jesus. And I have my own argument with him in regard to that. But you see, there's not a word in the ancient languages that we translate that says you should be an assertive personality. We don't have that word in the old days. They call it authority and they call it power, but they don't really have a word that translates easily into the biblical story that means what we call assertiveness today. So what we do is we observe the life of Jesus to see if we see assertiveness exemplified in his life in ways that make sense in our own culture. Assertiveness is an acquired skill. It's not necessarily something that you have naturally, but rather it's an acquired skill. Being assertive is simply stating who we are and what is our perspective. It means expressing your point of view without being aggressive or abusive. And this is a point where the writer gets a little uh, contradicted with Jesus. He sees several places where Jesus is assertive, but he says you couldn't say he was completely emotional assertive because look at how he goes off on the Pharisees. <laughs> you know, Jesus gets pretty hard on the Pharisees, right? I mean, he blesses them out pretty good, and then that's what he says. Well, see, he's not being healthily assertive at that point. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, I don't think I buy that line of thinking, but I see what he's meaning because he's looking for the pure definition of being assertive without being abusive or aggressive. Now, you all understand what it means to be assertive, sort of, don't you? It means speaking the truth in love, as it quotes in the Scripture. It means being able to communicate what you believe and your perspective on something without increasing the anger of the person you're talking to. 
People who know how to be assertive in church committees without being aggressive or abusive are greatly needed and desired. People who get on committees who do not know how to be assertive without being abusive or aggressive are really not desired on committees. You know why? Because they hurt people. Because they deflect the goal of the committee because they have to deal with the anger that's coming within the committee as one member says something that just infuriates somebody else. You see, if they've been empathetic and thinking about the feelings of the other person, then they would have said what they said more carefully. Have you ever some, had somebody love you so terribly and say something so hard for you to hear you were smiling when they got through? That's an assertive person. Have you ever done a little something wrong and somebody corrected you felt like you just got beat up with a sledgehammer? That's an abusive person, not an assertive person. So I want you to hear me clearly about this. There's a difference. You need to be assertive, but you do not need to be aggressive. You need to be assertive, but you do not need to be abusive. And that requires you to have great empathy for others before you speak. One of the things that determines a lot of the relationship between pastors and and their congregation is their degree of assertiveness. Listen to this carefully. You may be able to think of a few examples. Some pastors are not assertive enough. It's like they don't have an opinion about where the church should go or what the church should do. And people feel a little lost if their pastor doesn't have some assertive leadership in them. On the other hand, some pastors are so assertive that they're aggressive and abusive and people are glad when they leave because they felt beat up a lot. They felt like the pastor bullied over them. In fact, they say in this book that their studies show that the difference between congregations that are healthy and thriving has a lot to do with whether that pastor has the right kind of relationship with that congregation. Are they appropriately assertive but not abusively so? You know, I never had thought about it in those terms, but as I think back on things, churches complain. And you know, really the beauty of going to new churches in the Methodist system is every time you go, another congregation teaches you something. Something about what they thought about the pastor before you. Sometimes it's a little frightening. You know, you arrive at a church and they say, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're never going to be as good as the one that left. (laughs) And you kind of go, oh, well, at least that's clear now. You know, I don't have to overperform because it's not going to help any. Uh, and usually when you go to that church, you already know you're going to look pale in comparison to the one who's leaving. Or sometimes you go there, and after a while, somebody comes in and says, well, it seems so much calmer now. I, I leave feeling worship feeling better than I did when I arrived. I used to live worship always feeling beat up. Well, you see, that has to do with how people empathize with others when they preach and how people p- perceive the person who's preaching. If you have an empathetic relationship with others, you can't say some things in direct ways unless they give you permission to or unless you're in a counseling moment or unless when you're preaching a sermon and they don't know for sure who you're preaching about. So assertiveness is key. But without being abusive, without being aggressive, in the chapter where the paralytic was brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, He's brought to Jesus, and, of course, the first thing he does is talk about that person. Let's just read a few verses of that. 
good if I hadn't covered it up with my notes. Let's do this. Let's see. And they brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. That's what they think about Jesus. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, or we might say assertiveness, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Think about Luke 4, where Jesus is tempted by the devil. Was he assertive with the devil? Yes. But he wasn't abusive with the devil, was he? Even though he was dealing with the devil himself. He stood on his authority. He knew what he thought. He had optimism that God would back up his words, and so he quoted the Scriptures back to Satan. He was assertive about who he was, the Son of God, but not in an abusive kind of way. And so now, when you're thinking about assertiveness, we must be self-aware and empathetic about what others need and others want as well as what we need and what we want. And so thinking about it, we will better say what it is that God wants us to say. Assertiveness is a good trait we need to cultivate. The last thing I want to talk about this morning is one that's easy for you to understand in our culture. Stress resilience is another acquired skill. You know, and he defines it this way. I think this is a good way. And again, we're going to use Luke 4, uh, 1 and 2 as a background for this text. And also uh, Luke 4, uh, verse 13. The ability to face difficult and even frightening situations without breaking down physically, without losing your capacity to focus, or without becoming ineffective in accomplishing the task at hand. That's how he defines stress resilience. Managing your stress is a necessary skill in careers, relationships, and in your private life, inside yourself. You have to be able to manage your stress. In order to manage your stress... You're going to have to work at it. It's a skill that grows with you. We're all going to be stressed. I think Jesus could qualify for being stressful when he hadn't had food or drink in 40 days, and Satan came and tempted him to turn a rock into a piece of bread. You think that was stressful? You know, can you imagine what would have happened if the devil had appeared to me and I hadn't eaten for 40 days? I mean, can you? I would have strangled him, took the rock, turned it into bread, and ate it. But fortunately, Jesus didn't. He was resilient. He was able to do the proper thing, keep his focus on his interaction with Satan, and not upon himself. He was resilient. He was able to face stress in a healthy way. If we don't accomplish that in our lives, we ruin relationships, don't we? I used to think that Sally had a and so is my wife, if you're here new today. She had a unique talent. And that was how to know 
when I was really stressed because she would just come at me with something that would just push me over the edge. <laughs> Loud could be heard the crash when the inappropriate response to what she was talking about was the result of the stress I'd had all day. Now, fortunately for both of us, even though she was wise at the start in disciplining me by giving me a little more stress so I could learn that I could take more than I thought, <laughs> she grew to the point where she also could tell when I came in that some days it was just not a good day to talk to me, really. And I got clearer in that December by saying, you know, I've talked too many words today. Why don't we just look at one another and eat dinner? <laughs> Turn on the stupid box and let's be stupid and sit in front of it. And if something really important comes up, we can talk. But if not, don't require any empathy from me right now. I'm all out. And then I also got wiser along the way that if she gave me that look in her eye, I suddenly got better and wasn't so stressed. <laughs> Tuned into what she had to say and listened. Otherwise, I'd be dead by now, right? That's the way that works. But stress is a natural phenomenon of our life. We have to take advantage of it, and we also have to use it for our growth. You say, what do you mean take advantage of it? He writes in his book, in congregations, internal conflict creates more stress for staff and members, and yet some conflict is necessary for individual personal spiritual growth and development and also for the growth of the congregation. It's not good for congregations to meet together in meetings and everybody agree about everything in the first five minutes. It just means that somebody's having their way and everybody else is being quiet. Conflict means expressing your own assertive opinion and listening to the other opinions of others and then figuring out where God is calling a congregation to move. It doesn't mean going into a meeting and just lying down and accepting whoever's the noisiest or whoever has the most energy that night. If you're never conflicted spiritually, you're not going to grow. Some people want to live a Christian life where there's not any stress and trouble. I don't because, you see, stress and trouble causes us to grow closer to God. We are rarely capable of growing much closer to God if everything is going well. You're saying, are you saying we should pray for conflict? Certainly. Some anyway. If Sally and I hadn't had a little marital conflict for about 20 years, the last 22 wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. Okay, I'm exaggerating, Sally. Don't start marking down dates. Okay, dear. Thank you, dear. But it's true in your life with Jesus. If a preacher stands up and tells you what you want to hear about yourself every Sunday, pretty soon you'll think you're a pretty good Christian. I know I pastored such congregations where everything was just fine. Nobody was tithing. No new members were joining. There wasn't much witness going out from the church, but everybody was just happy as they could be until I arrived. Because <laughs> I didn't see anything to be so happy about. I don't see that much to be happy about when I look in the mirror. I'm a work in progress. If I don't look in the mirror and see that work needs to be done, if I don't become conflicted about who I say I am and what I'm doing, then I've reached my pinnacle. And some saints reach their pinnacle early, way before anybody else thinks they've reached their pinnacle. <laughs> you see, you have to keep being pushed, and conflict does that. Now, I didn't say abusive conflict. I just said conflict can be healthy. It can also obviously be unhealthy. We want to get rid of the unhealthy conflict and embrace the healthy conflict because we grow from it. Okay. Okay. 
our approach matters to life. Have y'all gotten that message? I think you have. And it's good because I'm tired. It's time to go home. I'm stressed now. (laughs) But I'm hopeful that the stress I feel will be handled by God. And in the end of that stress, I'll be stronger. Church will be stronger. Others will be stronger. And we will all be more mature, mature in our relationship to Christ. So if you're here today and you have a pessimistic streak that's a little wider than it needs to be, why don't you just take it in your hand and lay it on the altar today? Just set it down. I find old men typically more pessimistic sometimes than the rest of the generation. I qualify old men as all those who are one year older than I am. (laughs) They tend to have seen so much that they think things just aren't going to change. They're just so realistic that they're pessimistic. If that's you, take that pessimism in your hand. Grab hold of it. Choke it. You You like to be strong. Choke that pessimistic streak and lay it down. And open your heart and your mind to the risk of being optimistic. Who knows? You might find joy in new ways in your life. Who knows? You might feel the presence of Christ even closer to you than you have in that realistic, pessimistic slant that you may have seeked over into. Now, if you're a female and you think I was only talking about males, you're forgiven. But I wasn't just talking about old men or age-challenged people. I've known some very young pessimists in my day. Let's not be one. People are drawn to optimistic people, and Jesus was supremely optimistic. He preached abundance in the presence of scarcity because his trust in God was so deep that he had no fear. If you're here today and you're seeking a Savior, we offer you Jesus. If you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior, but you've been trying to be optimistic alone, it's really, really hard. We'd welcome the chance to welcome you into this family as we stand and sing our closing song together.